Revolution I can't get no call to action But I try and I try and I try Hello and welcome to Call to Action, the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising, and beyond. It is, as always, brought to you by Gasp, but as you can probably already tell, I'm not the show's usual host, Giles Edwards. Nope. I am JP Kastlin, omnipresent strategy and complexity management consultant who, not being content with being on the podcast twice already, have humbly invited myself to be the guest host while putting my boot very much on the other foot by catching Giles Edwards himself for a chinwag. A man who is curious to the point of everyone else's annoyance, Giles is the founder and creative director of Gasp, where he's been making fearless and inventive work for more than a decade. A wonderful overachiever, according to Rob Schwartz of TBWA fame, he's also the creative isolated talks, the host of Call to Action, obviously when I'm not around, and has collaborated on two number one best-selling books. He's also the dad to two little humans, much more likable than him. <laughs> and according to his best mate, is the kind of guy who would own a gazebo. Giles himself says many businesses think there's a correlation between creativity and risk, as if they have to come as a pair. The truth is that the really risky fuckers are the ones who turn out the same thing as everyone else. They're risking me at all, lunatics. An outspoken proponent of quote-unquote proper timeless marketing and its vital role in the boardroom, Giles can normally be heard ranting on the topic with steam guests on this very podcast. But today, it is him who is on the hot seat. So welcome to hell. I mean, your own show, Giles. <laughs> this is fucking weird. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, my friend? I'm good. Thank you, JP. Lovely intro. All right. Seven quick fire questions, although I suspect that some of these might need an explanation. So we'll start out. Marketing week or campaign? Marketing week. Easy. Do you want to qualify that? Oh, not really. Just a few legal wranglings I've had with campaign in the past. <laughs> As a lawyer, we'll leave that that. I'll plead the fifth. Yes. So next question. Ryan Wallman or Mark Ritson? Oh, Christ. It's got to be the doc. Ryan Wallman. All right. Fair enough. Beating Ogilvy in a pitch or beating an opponent in judo? Oh, wow. Judo. Where'd you get that one from? Um, oh, it's got to be Ogilvy in a pitch. Dear Blogfather... Or, Dear Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, wow. I think it's the Dear Elizabeth. So you've done some digging. Yes. So that was our a tragedy of sorts of a direct mail campaign that was personalized in error. And I think about a thousand units went out to C-suite recipients and referred to them all as Elizabeth. And out of the thousand, there were zero Elizabeths. Well, I mean, it's one way to stand out, right? It worked. Do you know what? It worked. The sales team said it was the best recall and best best lead gen they'd had for some time because <laughs> the recipients couldn't wait to point out the error and it started yeah. the conversation. Well, I mean, I'm sure Rory would have something to say about that, but I do like it. Yeah. Um, so moving on, being referenced in a Dave Trot blog... Or making international press for cheating at a spelling bee. <laughs> Who the fuck have you been talking to? Um, it would have to be uh, making front page of the Java post in, in, in Indonesia for cheating. Oh, you have to elaborate on this one. We might come on to Indonesia. I, I lived and worked in Indonesia for a couple of years. 
the school which I taught at, this was um, just after I finished university, was run by an incredibly affluent, very popular Chinese businessman. And he was opening a brand new sparkly school in the outskirts of Surabaya, which is after Jakarta, the second biggest city in Indonesia. And they thought, given Indonesians love a spelling bee, it sounds ridiculous, he thought it would be funny to invite all of the boules, so all of the Western white teachers who worked there to come and do an Indonesian spelling bee competition. And of course, we all said yes. Now, I, I was relatively new to Indonesia at the time and hadn't picked up any of the, the local language at all. But I knew where they might keep the answer sheet. <laughs> and so I managed to get into my director's, <laughs> director's office uh, and find said answer sheet. And I thought for a joke, I would write all the answers up my arms and legs in quite blatantly in a Sharpie pen and then just rock up to the school, sit down merrily and just have a bit of a laugh. But because the owner, Michael, is a lovely bloke, because he is who he is, he had somehow managed to get all of the, the national press on site. So they, oh God, they had a field day taking photos of the man who was dubbed Mr. Cheetah. <laughs> the new story the next day. Oh, okay. Well, that, that's a lovely story. We have a couple of more to come, I suspect, because the next question is dancing on stage with the winner of Indonesian Idol or being driven around London by Peter Stringfellow. Ah, oh, Stringfellow. It's got to be Stringfellow. I, I'm not a dancer. Well, not a sober dancer anyway. And the dancing on stage in Indonesia was horrific. Whereas <laughs> my quite bizarre and random couple of new biz meetings with Peter Stringfellow will, will stay with me. Did they ever amount to anything? They sadly didn't. Peter, uh, Peter at the time hadn't publicly announced that he was ill. Ah. And for various reasons, I'm sure that was a factor, they never ended up engaging with an agency. But for the record, he was such a incredibly fascinating and, and gentle chap who spent most of the night showing me photos of his daughter. I mean, Peter was, at the time, I think he was mid-70s and he had a, a daughter who was maybe two. Mm. Um, so it was quite surreal, but he was smitten. Um, and he was he was a gent. He was an absolute gent, but it was really bizarre because he he drove me around London in his Range Rover to show me both of his clubs and and just just have a night out. And everywhere we we went and stopped, people obviously recognised him and had photos taken. And it was just yeah, it was just bizarre, but it was good fun. All right, so we have our last question then. Prince Roger Nelson, also known as the for, artist formerly known as Prince, or <laughs> Prince Alex Auersberg, also known as he of Austria. Prince Alex. Yeah, Alex was a good mate of mine in Bristol. I had no idea he was a prince till I'd been living with him for a couple of years. All right. First of all, thank you for doing this, Charles. Thank no, you thank having... you. And thank you for having me as well. I referenced the quote by everyone's favorite Rob, or, you know, maybe he and Rob Campbell, where he called you a wonderful overachiever. When you look at the stuff that you've done, I mean, you, you have gasp and called ash and isolated talks and delusions of grandeur, blah, 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 right? It's kind of clear to see why. So to kick up the show, where did it all begin with you? I mean, what was your first ever job and what was the first ever proper job? First ever job, apart from the typical paper round, all of those types of things. I had so many jobs growing up. I've lost count how many pubs I've worked in. 
as bartender? Or? Yeah, yeah, mostly as a bartender. I had some kitchen work uh-huh. in the first couple before I turned. It was 16 at the time. You could you could essentially work out front, not just be hidden away in the kitchens at a certain age. So like pick glasses, um, pick glasses and stuff up. Yeah, yeah, basically that. And then ultimately that led to numerous jobs when I when I became a student and ended up at university. And I would just work in pubs. Pubs were always really familiar places to me. I remember. Um, it sounds like a story of neglect, <laughs> neglect, but my dad would always take us to the pub, give us a few quid, and I'd play on the football arcades while he was up at the bar. I used to, I just loved pubs. My, one of my brothers has subsequently become a pub landlord, or, or was uh, for a time in London. He now lives in in Australia. So pubs have always been a part of it. So what was the most amount, or the highest amount of, of uh, glasses that you ever picked at the same time? Oh, that's, that's a big yeah. one with people who can pick glasses. I, don't, I, I couldn't even tell you, JP. It's not. I don't think that was a. I don't think I was competitive in the glass stacking arena. It doesn't sound like you. <laughs> no, no, it doesn't, does it? But I worked in some weird pubs and some crazy pubs. And and at my time in uni, I remember working in this pub in in Surbiton called the Rising Sun. And honestly, there were more crooks per square inch than there would be in your local local prison. I mean, it's <laughs> one day I remember that a couple had um, locked their keys in their car and they came in to the pub. And it was one of those really unfriendly locals only pubs, aside mm-hmm. from a few of us students that they put up with because we gave them beer. And everyone turned around when this really clean looking smiley couple walked in and they just announced, look, we've locked our keys in the car. Does anyone know how to break into a car? And I've never seen so many people stand up so quickly. <laughs> oh, um, yeah, but a, a nice criminal. So we moved now from the house of the rising sun, I suppose, until your first proper job. What would that be then? Yeah, so first proper job. I mean, I did I did quite a bit. While I was at university, I always had work while I was studying and then while I was uh, in between years. And that ranged from working at the film editors, which was an editing house in, in Soho. So they, I mean, they're probably most known, or at the time they were most known for working on the parole officer film with Steve Coogan. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was nice and that was that was creative and I also worked at Electronic Arts specifically on the FIFA and a few other um, franchise games of theirs as a as a games tester that sounds like a dream job for for a young British guy right it was a dream job because I was a bit of a stoner I had dreadlocks I rode a BMX and I would just ride in and I would play games for eight or nine hours a day but I was really good at it because I'm really good at breaking things. So I'm really good at breaking code. Mm -hmm. So if you need a website testing, I'll find some flaws. But coupled with my obsession for football, I was able to report and find so many, I think they were called class A or category A bugs that I was, um, yeah, no, I was, I, I, I did really well. I, I went back, I think, three years on the trot to that job. And it was quite a tough, I mean, it sounds like a bit of a DOS, but it was quite a tough one to get into. There were all sorts of IQ tests and, and processes to get in there. In hindsight, it would have been a fun thing to explore and stick with. But at the same time, just looking around this stunning, it was their European headquarters in Chertsey, you could tell how long people had worked there based on how similar they look like comic book guy from the simpsons because <laughs> you got 10 to 15 pounds per shift you would get in takeaway credit so you'd be sitting there ordering pizzas or chinese or whatever playing games and just mostly sat on your ass and it just looked like a place where <laughs> after too long you'd become anchored my first proper job so in terms of proper creative and marketing job I never really appreciated how difficult this question was, JP. 
But my first proper job was when was after I went to Indonesia and taught English. So I had a couple of spells post university. I worked at a special needs school, um, a school for autistic children, but mostly because post uni, I went through that post uni crash that lots of people go through where you realize, fuck, life is now very real. Where's my little bubble of friends and, and whatever the life that I'm used to. Um, and I needed to do something different. I ended up working in this special needs school and I absolutely loved it uh, to the point that I thought, well, now's the time to do something a bit crazy again or do something and explore. Ended up getting, ended up qualifying to teach English um, at the school in uh, Windsor School and moved to Indonesia. And it was only because a family uh, tragedy that mm-hmm. I ended up coming back from Indonesia. I was due to stay there for another year but I came home and I applied to work in a local agency uh, and just thought I better pull myself together now and get back into graphic design which was what I first trained in or my degree was in Mm -hmm. and I worked for an agency which was it's an independent agency It, it, it was acquired in my second year of working there and things kind of changed a bit then but that was my first design and creative gig and i mean that takes us rather neatly to gasp i would say so i mean what was the the original idea we talk strategy you know the cutting away all the bullshit what was the so what did you set out to do originally with gasp the story doesn't it doesn't change every time i'm asked but things kind of make a bit more sense at the time i think i'd just stopped i'd stopped learning Mm -hmm. um I'm an obsessive learner. I think your intro said something about to the point of an or curious to the point of annoying people or something along those lines, mm-hmm. which is which is which basically sums up my first few years in in agency world because I was obsessed with looking what, what everyone else was doing and asking asking questions. But I realised after a few years that there was there was only so far I could go in the agency and the environment that that existed in this agency and and mostly the people who were in control of the agency. I think pre-acquisition, it had a nice culture, but post-acquisition, the goalpost really moved and really changed. And a few of us, I think morale really nosedived and a lot of people ended up either jumping or being pushed. And and myself uh, and three colleagues of them, one of them at the time was my girlfriend, who is now subsequently my wife and the only surviving when I say surviving I mean still involved in Gasp co-founder of Gasp Sophie set out to to create an agency based on everything we loved about the industry we worked in minus all of the nonsense and bullshit that we had been exposed to for some time namely the pressures to keep things in-house at the detriment of the work that you were delivering so at the time this was when I think Facebook was 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 in its very early days and Facebook was just an example of this new media that was quite revolutionary in terms of it being so different to what had preceded it or at least at face value but because it wasn't something that was familiar to the agency and this isn't just a Facebook thing there were dozens of examples under what they would call the new media department which essentially was one one chap who happened to know how to code locked out the back he wasn't even allowed in the studio and we weren't even 
we had no opportunity to explore it just even on the off chance that there would be something within the within these these media that could be valuable to clients and ultimately the whole media neutral approach that we have which every time i talk about it it just seems like like common sense Mm -hmm. so we said well let's set up a media neutral proper strategic agency where our overheads are as small as we can keep them and we just explore and partner and work with the best in whichever field we think best fits the brief and best serves um, the client problem and go from there which is what we did And, and and actually we realized after a year or two that there was a lot of bullshit that we had found quite sparkly and interesting and all of these social medias which we thought well actually we thought the sky might be falling and there's all this new opportunity and we had that kind of magpie phase that I think all marketers are you know at least part magpie where something shiny and sparkly comes along and you think oh that looks sexy let's let's move over there and actually lose sight of the fundamentals. Yeah I mean I was going to say like you're very much a man of my own heart in a sense that you're quite grumpy about marketing and the fundamentals. Uh, so what do you think is, is the problem with the current way of, of doing business and, and perhaps largely ignoring or at least forgetting the fundamentals? I don't know whether it's a need to think things are more complicated than they are mm-hmm. or a need to think things are simpler than they are. It's I know it's a massive uh, contradiction, but... I, I, funny enough, had a meeting today with a client and we went through a very exhaustive, I won't get into the whole, I suppose, semantics around building a strategy, but a very, very thorough diagnosis phase, which led into all of the right strategy decisions and, and crucially all of the right brand and positioning work that followed. And they are in such a strong place and that has been realized over the space of the subsequent 18 months and we were reflecting on it today and just I guess enjoying not in a in a self masturbatory type of way but as a as a group of clients and agency we actually we were kind of giving ourselves a pat on the back because our life has become so much easier as a consequence and I think that because people neglect those fundamentals and whether you are of the camp of say Ritson and it's the you know your market orientation and your research diagnosis type process there is a phase whatever label you want to give it that is too often neglected either because the business the conditions that the marketer is working within within the business has quite aggressive sales cycles and they monitor marketing's role in a business in such short cycles that they need to be desperately flogging to try and hit targets or what I, I I think there's all sorts of reasons why why people aren't afforded the time to do things properly coupled with the obsession that some people have with automating creativity which I just think again is a contradiction in terms I'm not sure you can automate creativity lots of processes can be automated but creativity I don't believe can be you can chuck so many things in there JP you can chuck in the billable hour Mm. I mean the billable hour is a massive noose around many people's necks and it's it comes with so many problems attached to it because you can't possibly measure and describe creativity based on units of time it doesn't it doesn't make sense and I think people inherently know that but by the time the decision has been made to do x or to judge the performance of 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 a business the people making that decision or making that judgment are so far removed from the people who understand that you can't describe things 
uh, well, you can't describe everything in units of time, but it's a it's it's a really tricky place to be. So I'm trying to be more positive than I sound. <laughs> I know I sound very grumpy at times, and I'm trying to be more positive. And I think it's because I realise that it's the product of of so much other circumstance and and business pressures and life pressures that we're in a bit of a mess, rather than everyone's a bloody idiot and for fuck's sake why can't they learn how to do it properly mm-hmm. so um, i think it's more the former than it is the latter yeah well i mean something that i see is that you know and, and of course i would say so because i'm a strategist but but you do see this lack of strategy and i don't necessarily talk about the tactification that richson is talking about but rather even if you're looking at you know job ads for cmo roles everything is already defined so a cmo should do this check, that check, this check, that check, and usually it's some sort of digital this or that, the other, right? And you lose the the overall strategic thinking, which is of course problematic. And and I think part of that is just because, well, one, people don't know the, the sort of the fundamentals, but two, they're not asked to do them either, if you know what I mean. Like you're usually just brought in as a specialist to fill in the blanks, which I think is problematic if you look at the overall trends in the industry. Yeah. But uh, I was going to ask you one thing as well, because I think this is a very interesting one, because you mentioned your client that you've been working with for, for a year and a half. So am I right in presuming that you are not just involved with the sort of strategy, but also also working with the uh, the execution itself? Absolutely. Yeah. So we're, we are the, the agency on record or, you know, retained mm. agency for the UK and US markets for our client. Because that is one of those things where oftentimes in my line of work, having worked with, with clients and, and helping them brief agencies or work with agencies or wherever it might be, um, you often encounter agencies who do one or the other. They either just do an execution uh, that can be a campaign or whatever else, or they are just brought into the strategy. And usually what happens in the latter case is that they create the strategy and then the strategy is sort of left in a you know, field somewhere or behind a rock or just collecting dust in an office. Um, mm. And so there's no real responsibility for, for the actual effect of, you know, the strategy, the outcome of the strategy. Whereas now you've been able to essentially turn that on its head and just go, well, we're going to do both. And I would imagine, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but that also create a, creates a sort of accountability and also respect for the client, would you say? Yeah, I would say accountability is, is key. And, mm. um, and in order to have that accountability, we need to be ultimately responsible for everything. There's no point handing over a strategy and, and expecting the client to pass that on to an agency or a selection of other agencies and then blame those agencies if it doesn't work without any, any flack coming back your way. So we, we need to be responsible. And, I, and I, I shudder when people talk about how agile is the word I was looking mm-hmm. for. You can be as a small agency, but within I think the sentiment of people saying that there is a there is a there is a truth or there's something at its core which is true, which is we don't have a big network to hide behind. I mean, Christ, I've got indirect and passive experience of a lot of the big. I say a lot of mostly. I'm not going to name them actually. A, a big network through my one of my older brothers who had a who has had a stellar career in advertising but catastrophically fell out of love with it and now doesn't go near the industry and if an office in Chicago underperforms they can make the numbers work by making a few redundancies in London and that is is terrible but it's a luxury of sorts if you're the agency trying to hang on to a reputation but we don't have that we're we're in the firing line and so if we're going to be in the firing line and blamed for something not working I want to be responsible for all of it 
so that they, if they do want to shoot me, <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's totally fair. Yeah, and I mean, from a client perspective, it's an interesting one because there is this old, you know, it comes out of IBM, I suppose, you know, no one ever got fired for, for buying an IBM. It sort of somehow became no one ever got fired for hiring McKinsey, which isn't true. I know that from personal experience, <laughs> but, but let's not go there. But my point is that that a lot of clients, especially if you work with big brands, they will only work or primarily work with the big agencies, which to me has always made little sense because... I kind of get that they have a big machine behind them, but they have literally no skin in the game. And this is mm. one of one of my pet peeves in, in marketing and advertising is this idea of strategy is always only the big idea. And you need to big bet, bet big on that big idea. And that's really yeah. easy to do or claim if you don't have, you don't have to bear the cost of potential failure. Whereas if you work as, with companies such as yours, and this is why I like the, what you just said about um, the accountability is that small agencies do have a, a bit of skin in the game because basically if they don't perform well, then they are kind of screwed. You know, exactly to your point, a large agency, agency can just fire a couple of people and then they're fine. I yeah. mean, long term, of course, they want to do decently well at least. But yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, no, that's, I mean, that's exactly true. And it's not even that we, you know, we're sort of at risk. We're completely and entirely at risk. And I, mm. and I don't know, I'm sure it's unfair to claim that's only something that small little independent shops like ours have. I'm sure the same is true as you scale up to a point. But it is, and, and I think the second point you said was that you get some respect. And I think you, I think you do. I think if you show that you want to be responsible and you ask for that responsibility, it might not be the right fit for a client. but it's the worst thing that will happen is that it will either end a conversation that was doomed to fail or it will start a really good conversation that will enable you to have an opportunity mm. and i think that's that's the the key with that and and also the other thing i suppose to that's worth clarifying is we don't claim we can do everything i mean we are a very small team of very smart people but just because we're smart, it doesn't mean we're good at everything. So we have a, a very eclectic range of skill sets and a very eclectic range of backgrounds. But we we do work with partners, whether they're, whether it's a big animation house like Ardman Animations, who do all the Wallace and Gromit work that you might be familiar with, or it's the incredibly talented tech team behind the wizarding world of harry potter we've worked with so many people because they're the right fit and will deliver the results that we want to be associated with under the umbrella of gasp and i think that's the the kind of point i was making about our previous agency was we would we if you picture a venn diagram of good work in one circle and good money in the other of course we need to make money, but we would rather be, as long as it fits in there, as long as that's good work is delivered, mm. then we, even if it's outside of earning fortunes, it's what kind of turns us on and it's what we set out to do when we, when we set up GASP. Well, I mean, w one thing that I see a lot as well is that when you have acquisitions, usually what happens is that the culture of the acquiring company is the culture that ultimately prevails. And so sometimes when you have all of these small boutique agencies, even within a bigger concern, it's just sort of another version of the big agency in a sense. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, working with what, the way that you're working, um, it does, it appears anyway, um, a lot for a bit more, I hate to use the term because it's such a fucking cliche, but <laughs> it, it is more authentic, if you know what I mean. 
It's yeah, just... I mean, it's one of those words that's been so abused that you, yeah. we all struggle to use it when it's the accurate, you know, way of using it. But yeah, and and I think it's because, I suppose, coming back to that media neutrality point, I mean, why limit the tools at your disposal when you're trying to diagnose and solve a problem? It's essentially that, isn't it? Yeah. Um, the whole, if all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, but I mean, on that topic, if you're talking about tools, I know that you're a big fan of, of behavioral economics, and, and I know Rory loves, uh, as does Dave Trot loves gas, but speaking of like behavioral economics, where did that interest come from? Was it also out of uh, out of the sort of agency side of it, or was it just more of a, you know, you're what you mentioned is you're longing for knowledge in a sense that yeah I don't know I, I it's again it's something that I think is uh to use an example I I, I remember talking to Richard Shotton ages ago at Nudgestock so I mean regardless Gasp has been supporting Nudgestock for ever since it started so I don't mm-hmm. know if that's what eight nine years ago we've been going it's always been our event of the year so we've always been interested with it but I remember talking to Richard Shotton about uh, the pratfall effect because I think it was one of the first pieces I remember him writing about because he was sharing the Hans Brinker Hotel ads which are one of my favorites for a, a equivalent of a basically a youth hostel in Amsterdam yeah. um, with the you know the headlines free wi-fi with next door's password and all of that type of things <laughs> and one of the one of the early examples that he credited uh, with the pratfall effect was we're number two so we you know we try harder the avis campaign and the point i remember making to him was yeah but the pratfall effect hadn't been coined as a as an effect like that heuristic didn't yeah. exist mm-hmm. and so actually f- to me it's just human behavior. And if you work in our industry and you're not interested in human behavior, then something doesn't really add up. Like it's, mm-hmm. it's just a thing. And funny enough, again, just going back to this meeting I had earlier, we were talking about getting refunds for a couple of products um, entirely unrelated to work and how clients introduce friction or businesses introduce friction to make it so hard to get a refund that ultimately you give up. And that is another psychology reference and point to make, much like this client of ours, they operate in the retail and hospitality world. And we were talking and have done extensive research all through lockdown to measure the behaviours and attitudes and the real anxiety that exists about returning to pubs when lockdown eases. We were relating it to that feeling of not knowing how to behave when you get somewhere. So a few weeks ago, I went to the pub with my wife Sophie and our our two daughters and we got to the entrance and we didn't know what was expected of us and we didn't know how to behave because there was clear signage to say everyone needed to wear a mask and of course we were but there was no one to greet us there were people sat at tables in in little clusters but there wasn't even a sign to say wait here you know don't if no one's here don't worry we check the front of the entrance every five minutes or something like that and it made me think of the lift that Rory likes to talk about which I think was terminal five in Heathrow and this lift only serves two floors it either goes up one or it goes down one and so subsequently when they designed the lift they saw no need for buttons because if you get on at the ground floor you're going up and vice versa and what they hadn't considered is the fact that when those lifts shut the doors shut you're stuck in a metal box with no buttons and people freak out of course they do and it's Mm. it's that type of behavior which we were thinking about that we were drawing parallels with returning to restaurants and pubs where people just are unsure how to behave so we need to advise our clients the conditions that they are 
dealing in and, and the, the very simple changes they can make to the environments and the spaces that they're trying to get customers back to, all of this lovely footfall they've lost over the last year, mm. and just implementing simple things like clear signage about what to expect. And that's kind of all comes under behavioral science, but it also all comes under marketing and comms. Yeah, you can also actually claim it comes under an agile approach to work. And this is something that I've actually spoken to Rory about. Um, and my point was that, so when you do safety fail parallel experiments, um, when I talk about it, usually I talk about it within a sort of corporate strategic setting, so it has to do with other things. But that could be just, I mean, if you're a coffee shop owner, that could be putting, you know, fries on the menu or putting the chairs out in front of the, the shop, as Rory likes to point out, or... You know, yeah. any any sort of amount of, of various very cheap stuff that, that has a, a sort of a positive asymmetry in the sense that actually it's very cheap to test, but it can provide a lot of sort of potential upside down the line. And I think that's one of the keys of or benefits of, of behavioral science and behavioral economics and being able to try that stuff out because yeah, you'll do all the other stuff as an agency, I presume, but you can also play around with the small stuff that who knows, it could become a huge hit. But of course, yeah. that, that requires you to actually know that stuff, obviously, right? Yeah, it, it does. And, it, and I suppose it, at least having a term for something, as I'm sure Rory would back mm. this up, having a term for something makes it easier to, you know, to bring to mind. There's a bit of salience there because it makes you think of it and consider it and ask, ask questions where perhaps there weren't questions before. But even, even something as simple as the party cannon logo that, that's always doing the rounds. And, and you know, I say that I've, I've used it myself in, in talks. For the listeners who don't know, it's a, a, a poster from a death metal or heavy metal uh, festival. All the band names look exactly the same. And then one is written like a, you know, it would be a clown car or something. That's Ob- it. Obvious it stands out, right? Yeah, we'll, we'll link to it in this episode listing for sure. But it's like yes. it's like a sort of Crayola type logo. Now, mm. that's used quite rightly. And people will say, oh, you know, it's part Gestalt. It's, you know, Von Restorf, Professor Von Restorf, who found, you know, studied patterns and, and, mm. and how to achieve standout. So those things are really, really relevant when it comes back to, if I think back to my early days training as a graphic designer, the reasons, the bit that didn't click for me when I was doing that, is that was all about pure aesthetics and pure design. And I've always distinguished the two between your arts leaning into, say, architecture. It's oh, perhaps not architecture, but the point being that what we do is more applied. So you could get two graphic designers uh, looking at that logo and someone who is who has a very pure training and uh, opinion on the aesthetic would criticize it. Whereas in the application of the, the logo for its desired purpose to achieve standout and recall and be memorable it's exactly where we need to be you could argue that comes under behavioral science but actually it's it's i don't know i think it's bigger than that i think it's more core than that and i think it's that's the part of it which i think everybody should have an understanding and an interest in if they're trying to do anything that has an application to hit an objective yeah no i agree i mean i think we were talking earlier about the fundamentals and I think that's the benefit of, of knowing the fundamentals. You know the base, sort of base level stuff like this. You know mm. why this works like that, or this should work like that. Um, and if you don't, if you don't have that, then of course everything will be experimentation. But you won't necessarily learn from it. Um, you know, I, I've called this praxis in the past in, in my written work. But this idea of inform, informed learning, and if, when you find things out, you need, need to be able to lo- know enough that you can actually see, okay, this is beneficial, that is not. 
Um, you need to be able to, when you see the chocolate bar melting in your pocket, understand that it has to do with radio waves so that you can invent the, the microwave and so on. Um, and I think that that's sort of one of the benefits of, of the fundamentals we were talking about. Again, understanding why it is like this, or why it is like that, or why we should try this and why we should try that, wouldn't, be, wouldn't you say? Yeah, and I also think the fundamentals allow you to simplify things to the point of being really focused and actually really smart i mean it's a it's a trotism that people mistake complicated for smart and and the same is true and and using trots impact communication persuasion three three crucial hurdles has seen us successfully apply those types of learnings and thinking so one of the campaigns which gas is still very well known for albeit it was years ago was sending screwed up rubbish a, a, a letter that was screwed up into a ball suspended in a perspex box to the recipient because we knew that no one would receive a screwed up letter and not wonder what the hell that letter was mm. and that's so simple and almost cheap and trivial and silly and daft but too many people are, are really sweating the words that are on the letter, the data that feeds that letter, the targeting criteria for who they're reaching. And there's so many tools available to us now. I don't want to sound like someone that says, oh, you know, everything's changed in, in the last generation of marketers. But there mm. are so many tools available to us now to measure, you know, in the CRM type systems to give us this, I don't know, this perceived intelligence, which actually isn't quite what it claims to be, that we, we're losing sight or it's too easy to lose sight of the basics and the fundamentals of you need to be noticed. So I think, I think having, having a very simple philosophy, albeit one that is robust and built on logic and, and, and sense and is very smart, mm. allows us to approach work in the right way. Yeah, I was going to say, because I think one of the problems is that, and I can't remember who originally came up with this quote, maybe you know it, but there was someone who once said that that man believes he's a master of language, but actually language is a master of man. Oh. Um, and I think one of the problems, exactly to your point, is that we are at a point now where a lot of people are using overly complicated language to basically obfuscate, you know, meaning for a bunch of reasons. It could be because they're basically charlatans. It, might, it could be because they know that, sort of a, a stupid remark made in plain language will just you know demonstrate that they're stupid or it might yeah. be something else but i think the i think you're absolutely right about the the problem with language and and again it, it that goes into the techniques that we use the tactics that we use to strike whatever it might be it's uh, it's very um almost overly deliberate technical language in order to basically conceal what you do i agree and i and i also think there is it's, it's so easy to uh, look back and kind of retrofit mm. where you think you, why you are where you are or why why you have an appreciation for things you have an appreciation for. But I remember learning my, that there's all sorts of like um, teaching English as a foreign language type courses. And, and within that training, there's significant difference between the top of the spectrum and the bottom of the spectrum in terms of the actual training. I, I actually went on quite a significant teacher training course where I I learned Serbo-Croat for a few weeks okay. by being exposed to Serbo-Croat and nothing else. So our teacher didn't know any English or they did, but they weren't allowed to use anything just to understand the, the fundamentals of how you can communicate when language is taken away. Mm -hmm. And partly because the school I wanted to go and work at in Indonesia insisted that the teacher's 
didn't know the native language because they didn't they wanted complete 100% exposure of the language that the students were meant to be learning which sounds quite ruthless but actually there's, there's huge effectiveness from those conditions which actually makes it ridiculous they asked me to go to the spelling bee when you think about it but anyway <laughs> it's that that gave me an appreciation of, of communication and mm. in those instances you are trying to converse or trying to communicate with the most base level expressions noises sounds smiles gestures and yet that's the other end of what you're talking about quite rightly where people hide behind jargon or mm. complicated work to, because they're you know charlatans or whatever it might be or, or even there they're just unsure they might not be you know often I think good people find themselves in situations where they need to bluff their way out of a situation and I think that happens a lot of the time yeah I mean maybe that's a result of not having training I'm sure not sure but it would appear to me, you know, for someone who actually doesn't work in communications, but one of the core principles of communications is that communication is on the terms of the recipient, if you know what I mean. And yeah. oftentimes in advertising or copywriting, that seems to have been forgotten. And you get instead of, you know, the, the, the beautiful Porsche ads in the 1970s, you get something like, you know, shaped by performance or, you know, essentially nonsense. And, and again, nothing stands out. Yeah. But speaking of questions, so we're actually going to move on to listener questions now. And the reason why I, I basically was led on up that path was you mentioned perceived <laughs> intelligence. And as it happens, the first question is by Nick Ellis. Um, oh, but <laughs> but <laughs> asking the, the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger. But that's not stopped us from asking listeners for questions to put to our guests. As usual, we've selected two, starting with, as I mentioned, Nick Ellis, who is the founder of Halo and Call to Action alumni, and very, very bright indeed, although he will not publicly admit to it himself. He's not. It's all bullshit. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Nick it's Paul. A... Paul does all his work. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like both, both Paul and Nick, I'll have to say. But speaking of Nick, so he asked, do the numerous industry awards mean anything anymore? Uh, are too many awards watering down the effect of winning one? And do clients really give a shit when you've won the best something, something digital, something from the drum? I I think they mean something to certain people. Mm -hmm. It's one of those questions which is a bit more grayscale than black and white. I know a guy who works in really high-end recruitment and he told me a, a while ago that if he's recruiting or headhunting for someone in the, or trying to fill a position for a client in the city, they could spend up to six figures on that or that one hire alone hmm. with the amount of testings and you know psychometric testing and all sorts of hurdles that they implement i'm not going to say his name because for obvious reason but he said to me giles it's to be honest mate it's the flip of a coin if it's yeah. going to work it's a flip of a coin when you recruit someone you can as we'll all be aware you can get through you can ace all of the interviews and get in but maybe when you start working you're just a really bad fit for their culture or you know this personnel issue or who knows but mm -hmm. the point being is it's it's a way of making a decision to minimize potential blame i suppose and i think awards has that value to it in as much as they're not the be all and end all um and there was some recent comment from the dnad about awarding campaigns which had a brand purpose attached to them mm. um and i don't know i think some awards have more meaning than others yeah i, I was going to say i mean i think that that that's 
not to go into my critique of Bennett and Fields' work, but I think that's one of the problems with a lot of the effectiveness awards is basically people just go look at you know whichever uh, way the wind is blowing and then they say, oh, this is brand building and that's activation. Um, but I think one thing that, that I wanted to ask you, and, and I'm going to name drop like crazy now, but um, I was in a cab with uh, Fernando Machado, the former CMO of, of mm. Burger King, who's now at, at Blizzard. We're actually talking about uh, awards and he pointed out that um, he kind of liked awards for Burger King, partly because it's sort of always good to obtain for that, but also because it basically ensured that whenever they had new agency pitches, the agencies would actually really, you know, go for it because you'd set that standard. Would you say that that's true? That yeah, I think that's true. And yeah. I, I think I think for your own staff retention and recruitment, there's value to that because mm. if you are a talented sparkly grad who's got your pick of agencies you're you're likely going to be incentivized where the awards are but as a small independent agency there are the likes of say vic polkinson so vic is incredibly talented unbelievably brilliant agency sell sell Mm -hmm. they don't enter any awards because i think they have reached the conclusion that it's just not the right battleground for independent agencies like them and, and dare I say like us. It's similar to the, the 30 under 30 lists that get published. I mean, not only I think they're bullshit because if anything, we should be doing 30 over 30s or a fuck no, 100 under 100 years old because there's such an ageism issue. Mm. But I know dozens of people under 30 year olds who, would, who weren't even considered for those lists because they work they work their nuts off at small independent agencies across the country of which there are many more than there are network agencies mm-hmm. but the headcount is much bigger at the network agencies and the you know the salaries and the money involved and the ad spend is much more significant so i think there is a weird kind of almost perverse celebration of network agencies yeah um, within the awards well i mean as well like, like uh, exactly to the previous point about you know trying to figure out which way the wind is blowing. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if you look at these lists of, of top 40 over this or top 30 under that or whatever, usually it costs a fair bit of money to enter those awards. Yeah. Um, and so if you're a small independent agency, maybe you don't have the money to quote unquote waste on such things. Whereas if you're a big agency, you kind of do. Um, yeah. Which is of course problematic because a lot of those awards are almost, I mean, to take a look at can for example it's almost a, a sort of prop generating machine in and of itself um yeah. but which is problematic i think it's probably worth pointing out actually before i offend a very close friend of mine who did appear in the the uh, campaigns 30 under 30 that just because you appear on those lists it doesn't mean you're talented but nor does it mean you're not talented oh no yeah uh, a good friend of mine asd is incredibly bizarrely and annoyingly talented and bright and he did appear on one of those lists but the point being that the the pool of talent that is selected from isn't representative of the whole industry and i think that's yeah. that's the issue Yes, I agree. I agree. As a side note, I, I actually made one of those list ones. Uh, I made okay. a yeah, I made a forty over forty list despite not entering anything uh, at the age of thirty nine, <laughs> which was an interesting Amazing. one. Yeah, but yes, that's that's how just how those things go, I suppose. Um, but speaking of of CTA alumni, we have a question from creative director at Peter and Paul Lee Davis who asks. Both in and out of this industry, where do you look to for inspiration? Is it music? Is it art? Advertising? Design? Spelling bees? <laughs> Spelling bees, yeah. Where do I look 
for inspiration I don't know that I look for inspiration I think it's I think it, I think if maybe it comes the other the other way round I mm-hmm. I am obsessed with writing but not I'm not a reader in as much as I'm obsessed with comedy uh, I'm I adore stand up comedy um I love the I love wit I love smart delightful playful silly comedy uh, and I think there's real talent I think I was making the point talking to Dave Harland yesterday and I made the point that you will never meet a very funny dumb person because to be really intelligent and witty to me that's like an upper echelon of smarts that few reach and I think there's huge parallels with comedy and what we do Mm. and I think wit plays a huge part in most of the work that we do uh, not because of that because I think that's it's always a good place to start. If you can, if you can communicate something that involves the recipient of that piece of communication, whether they need to close the loop themselves or whether there's something where the penny drops, I think you see that practice in abundance in in, in comedy. And it's not just stand up. I mean, I I would quite happily waste a whole day watching back to back Only Fools and Horses. I think there's things that have been written in the past that are wonderful. And in terms of music, I think music's definitely a space. But again, for me, it's lyrics. Mm-hmm. So I adore uh, hip hop. I adore French hip hop specifically. I adore like, Method Method Man from <laughs> from Wu Tang Clan. It's going to sound ridiculous. Yeah. He's one of the best writers of all time. If you if you if you read Wu Tang Clan's lyrics, you don't have to listen to it because it might not be your taste. Yeah. But if you read the wordplay and language, it is incredible. And I think that's probably where maybe passively I get inspiration. But I don't. I don't go there to look for inspiration I, and I tend to fill my world and my life with silly things and immature things. But speaking of, I mean, I, in a, we'll have this conversation another time because I don't think it's that interesting to your listeners, but in a different lifetime, <laughs> I actually wrote stand up for some of the, some of the standups that are seen a lot on TV in, in the UK. And, and what I discovered was that um, doing stand up is, is very good, not just for your own, you know, you know self-worth i think because you're very much exposed but also to sort of you know work out how to do public speaking for example which is something that i do a lot have you ever tried stand-up we uh, well it's funny you should say that we send new starters at gasp on stand-up comedy courses oh wow intentionally for the reasons you just um you just stated it's that it's brilliant it's absolutely brilliant and there's so much to learn from it it's something that I think more people should do uh, because I, I, I mean, I get that not a whole lot of people are, um, you know, self hating people such as myself who actually enjoy public speaking. But nonetheless, I think that stand up is one of those things where it's very good for you to try it out. Just get feel for it if you have the quote unquote balls, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. I feel like I haven't given Lee a decent answer there, but. I'm not sure what else there is really. I think I think anything that makes you think and look at things differently. I mean, in mm-hmm. fact, even this is going to sound quite uh or maybe maybe it won't sound wanky, but as a dad, it's it's refreshing to be exposed to two tiny little humans that I have knocking around somewhere mm-hmm. um without any preconceived idea of how things work or how they should work or how they should think. Um and to give you an example of something which really tickled me when she came my my youngest Annabelle I think she was probably four at the time we were leaving to go to school or go to nursery or whatever one morning 
and it was daylight, but the moon was still in the sky. Mm -hmm. And she, in the way a four-year-old would, she lost her shit because it wasn't the moon's turn. It was now (laughs) the sun's turn to be in the sky. And that sounds daft and ridiculous, but I reckon Pixar could turn that into a film, the sun and the moon learning how to share the sky. And it was just, Mm -hmm. it was taking things like that that come out of their mouths and actually just enjoying the the ignorance behind it maybe or the just the magic behind the way her mind works i find that really fascinating well i mean ru- rumors have it that you've actually made both of your daughters we themselves with laughter <laughs> i have i have yeah. it's one of the few things i've done that i mean don't get me wrong i think if we were in a burning building and the girls could only save one of us it would be sophie hands down they'd go for mum but i know that i've can make them laugh to that point that's one of the few the few things i think you just need to i think comedy is is important i think it's the only reason that i got away with being a teacher for so long in indonesia i was shit at teaching english i was awful (laughs) but i was really popular Mm -hmm. and would always get students repeat booking because our classes were ridiculous and funny and just to not to big myself up because the most popular comedian in Indonesia is Mr Bean they're like 20 30 years behind the rest of the kind of developed world in terms of their comedy but you can just stand up and be a dick if you're running a kids class and mess around and they just think you are you're just the the best thing and if they can learn while you're having fun and that's great and I think that's important with with the girls so yeah I'm again I'm not I'm as good a dad as I am as as I am a teacher I think but but I was going to say I think is it not true that you can also learn a lot from them? Because, of course, children tend to be a lot more creative than adults. Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Because they, they, don't have, they, don't have the, they don't have that kind of shame or that awareness that you get over time mm. where you become petrified of asking dumb questions or you think something behaves a certain way. So they'll come out with things and they might come out with things which are you know, not appropriate, but they will always come out with things that that are just not what you would expect from an adult who had maybe been molded in a way that they hadn't been around long enough to be molded. Yes. I mean, it, it's very true. It's, um, what's it called? Ken Robinson. Robert? So Ken Robinson. Yeah. We worked yeah, with yeah. him at Garth, the late great oh, Sir Ken wow. Robinson. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, his story about, of course, the ballet dancer. Oh um, yeah. 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 Which is an amazing one. Do you want to tell it for the listeners perhaps? Uh, yeah, well, so this is this is a story about a a mum who or, or a young girl who was struggling to pay attention in class, and she's always fidgeting and physically was was finding it difficult to to focus. And I think it got to the point where they were considering either medication or special sport, or certainly a, a, something that you would probably put under the umbrella term special treatment for for a child. Uh, the person she took her to see said to the mum and the little girl, I'm just going to go out of the room with 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 mummy now. You stay here and we'll be back in a minute. And on the way out, he flicked the radio on. And when they got outside, they turned around and watched through the door and the little girl just jumped up and down and started dancing. And, and, the, and the guy or, or lady said to the mum, your daughter's not mad. She's a dancer. Yeah. And, and to that story, I mean, the, this little girl went on to join the Royal um, Ballet Academy, of course, in, in London. Uh, she then had a very successful career as a ballet dancer. She started her own private company and, and uh, essentially choreographed all the Andrew Lloyd Webber shows. Yes. So, and, and Ken's point or, or uh, Mr. Robinson's point is that basically, so she's had a, an amazing career. She's a multimillionaire and has given untold joy to millions. And 
just because someone realized she was a dancer and someone someone else might have just you know given her a pill and told her to calm down exactly that yeah that's, that's it that's yeah so embracing yeah embracing creativity is so important i think we we actually got we hired Siken once for as a keynote for an event that we were running for an e-learning client and he was such a gent he was one of the most naturally articulate and intelligent blokes and bizarrely had struck up a quite worryingly close relationship with my wife Sophie because she is quite rude and abrupt and I think most people <laughs> would watch what they say around her to yeah. the point that he was sent me a signed copy of the book he was working on at the time all the way from I think he was in he was certainly in the states yeah. and about two months later it hadn't arrived and she sent him an email and the subject line was snail and the only thing it said in her email to Sir Ken Robinson was, is your fucking book attached to one? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the stories of, of your wife's use of language are legendary. Yeah. <laughs> you can um, take the girl out of Bracknell. Yeah. But no, I mean, I think uh, on a last note on that, I think because I, of course, you know, famously or infamously, I suppose, um, work a lot with complexity these days. And one of my sort of insights, if you want to call it that, so it's not too pretentious a term, is that actually most people are really good at dealing with complexity sort of intuitively. But when we have to do strategy within it, we sort of lose our ways. And one of the reasons why is that exactly to your previous points about your, your daughters and also Ken Robinson's point about how we are trained at school. We are basically taught all through a basic education to higher education and beyond that there's a correct way of doing things. Um, if you don't, and, and if you don't do that, if you don't know the answer is your fault, if A doesn't lead to B is your fault. Yeah. And we take that into our adult lives. And then we, when we do our strategy, for example, and we do our plan, this is usually what strategy is these days. Uh, when things don't go according to plan, we blame ourselves. And actually is, that's not necessarily true. And we would probably be a lot better off. And I don't want to put children on boards, but we would probably a lot, we could, I mean, that would be practically difficult or problematic probably but but point being that actually if we if more of us thought like children like your daughters like the people you know like robinson was talking about actually i think we were probably better at dealing with how deal with companies and you know creating successful endeavors there's there's a really i know i know you wanted to move on there's a quick story i want to tell which is precisely that oh please do please do please share it's an, an older stage so when i worked at the school Fremantle, it was a school for autistic children so wherever someone may be on that spectrum they would typically go to our school however it sadly became a bit of a dumping ground for local state schools who had problem children and thought that that you know, warranted them sending them to our school. But anyway, we had a couple of teaching assistants who themselves were on the autistic spectrum. And one of the ladies I worked with called Sue, she had Asperger's, but which gave her maybe a common language or a common way of understanding some of our pupils in a way that I would never have understood them. And there was there was a moment I, that we were waiting to go swimming. I worked with the eldest uh, year group we had and we had a, a kid called Jamie an incredible incredible kid he was very reliant on the structure of his day and the habits within his days and his routines but the school bus was late there had been an issue with traffic or something and the school bus was late to take the boys swimming and Jamie became very agitated and very quickly it became a bit of a problem where he represented a risk not only to the other pupils but to himself because he was getting quite um, quite upset and physically um, quite agitated. And whilst I and some of the other teachers 
were focused on telling Jamie what not to do, Sue just quickly grabbed a hula hoop ring from the playground, which was we were adjacent to, put it on the floor next to Jamie and said, Jamie, stand in the circle. And he stood in the circle really happily, really calmly, because he had been asked to do something and he was doing it really well. Mm. And that was it. And it was just done. And it was, it was, oh, it was amazing, JP. I just remember thinking, oh my God, <laughs> this woman is a, is just magic. I, I, we'd become so caught up in what we thought we needed to do that we hadn't even considered just asking him to do something as opposed to not doing something. Yeah. We're moving towards the final part of the interview, which means that we have in front of us now the four pertinent posers that we put to all our guests. So we get to the usual questions. Firstly, what advice would you give to your younger self? I haven't planned these, JP, because I, I, I don't know, I wanted to not really think about this because I, I typically have an answer for this type of question mm -hmm. uh, around failure. But I think I've spoken about that so much that I'm just going to echo something that I think I said earlier, which is to ask more dumb questions, which I think there is, there is a, a link there to failure or being scared of failing and asking dumb questions and sounding mm. stupid but all you know most of the smart questions have been asked already and dumb questions can lead to really really fascinating places to explore I remember one of the first like really senior shiny client meetings I was involved in as a as a as a young creative as an art director was when we we worked alongside Adam and Eve before they became part of DDB on the O2 account. And we had a client come in from O2's side and he was chucking acronyms around the room in this meeting like you wouldn't believe. And I thought I need to, if I need, if I need to be involved in this brief, I need to ask what the fuck he means when he mm. says PAD or whatever he was chucking. And I, and I just literally said, look, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but can you explain what this, that acronym means? And he went mad at me because he clearly didn't know what it meant. Mm. And I was, and that really, that really affected me for a time because I suddenly felt like, hang on a minute, why am I being screamed at for asking a question mm. that, about a word that has been thrown around every few words here, an acronym? And it was bizarre, but uh, I, I think we need to ask more dumb questions. Uh, and we, we actually have a, uh, policy and it's something that Beth who you know I talk to her about and challenge her to ask a dumb question every time she's in a meeting because the dumb questions are normally the questions that everyone else is dying to ask but too scared to yes that's a I mean that's a very important point if you work uh in any kind of diagnostics or if you work as a consultant being sort of confident enough to play the fool in the room can be highly valuable I'm not only to yourself uh, and actually sort of getting the information that you're looking for, but actually it can be quite liberating to the client. So I mm. echo that definitely. Um, so moving on, if you could banish one thing from the industry, what would be and why? I was going to say the billable hour, I think, but we talked about that earlier loosely. So I'm mm. going to ban subjectivity when reviewing work or when discussing strategy or when doing a large majority of what we do, because it's totally irrelevant. We try and strip subjectivity out of everything that we do at GASP and every conversation we have with clients where possible because liking an ad is just as important as liking a parachute. It just it works or it doesn't work. And I think the more that we allow subjectivity to influence decisions and, and conclusions that we make, the more the, the more trouble we're in. 
Excellent. Third question, besides obviously the strategy in polymy and my upcoming book next year, you know, <laughs> soon to be available and find bookstores everywhere, he said, it's a shameless plug, not at all sounding like a dildo salesman. Um, <laughs> are there any books that you might recommend? <laughs> yeah, well, so many have come up as well, you know, you know, all of Trots, all of Rory's, Choice Factory. Um, I have to say Delusions of Brandeur and Copywriting is. So I've, I've grabbed a few from my bookshelf beside me. There's one, in fact, we were talking about Vic Polkinson earlier and the guys at Sell Sell, which is Vic and Andy. They published their manifesto at least a decade ago, I believe, and it's called How to Make Better Advertising and Advertising Better. Mm. And it's it's a very small book, but it's packed full of smarts. And I recommend everyone read it because I am increasingly surprised by how few people have. So I'm going to chuck that one in there. Well, I'm not sure how you buy that, but I will pester Vic and, and get an answer before we publish this. Uh, a, a Smile in the Mind is a wonderful book that hasn't ever come up on this series. And that's always surprised me, but it's a great, great design book, which is focused almost entirely on wit and playfulness. And there's, in fact, there's one that I grabbed, JP, and it's a book that I, I, I grabbed this in your honor. I... I read this when I was in Indonesia prior to working in the industry or really knowing that I was going to end up in this industry at all because I was fascinated with, with the topic. The book is called Sync, S-Y-N-C, mm-hmm. The Emerging Science of Spontaneous Order. And it's written by a guy called Stephen Strogatz. I might have gutted his name there. And it was only in preparation for today and knowing that you were going to be putting me through my paces, that I dug this book out and thinking this is actually a book that I adored reading. And I flicked to the back to remind myself about the contents. And there's a line here. Stephen Strogatz, leading researcher in chaos and complexity theory. And I thought, ah, (laughs) I will recommend that because JP may have read it. And if he hasn't, he certainly should. I will, I will make a note of it. And so finally, we always dedicate every episode to someone and we bestow that honor to our guest, Mr. Giles Edwards, the man, the legend, the myth, who also has to give his recent why. So who, who do you actually attribute this to and why? There's a, there's a couple of, of mentions that I want to give and one of them is an overlap into the dedication. So my special mention is to Roshan Kapoor and... Andrew Wright, who were the two creatives who I think I can identify as being my first ever mentors of sorts when I was working alongside them. And they very quickly made sure I accelerated up to the big shiny briefs because they would let me dabble in their creative briefs from time to time. And after striking it lucky and having one or two harebrained but good ideas they suddenly thought shit this guy needs to be part of our creative team and 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 that's how it happened and it was an absolute honor when we started gasp because andrew is actually the a of our gasp acronym which was giles andrew sophie paul when we founded the agency so i got to form an agency with my former boss however gasp very quickly within about two three weeks became G and S, uh, just uh, Giles and Sophie. So Andrew and Paul are no longer part of the agency, albeit Andrew did subsequently rejoin Gasp a few years later. But anyway, my my dedication goes to the four founding members of Gasp, or at least the three others. So that's Andrew. I should say yourself too. <laughs> what swap? Andrew, Sophie, and Paul. 
Lovely stuff. So as a final call to action, you can head over to this episode via calltoaction.co where we shared links to everything that we discussed in the last hour as mentioned. How can we get more of you? I adore Twitter because it fits perfectly with my short attention span and my almost attention deficits and hyperactivity issues that I have. So Twitter, Giles underscore Edwards, LinkedIn, I suppose, call to action when it's not been taken over by a a mouthy Swede, isolated talks we can plug. That's about it. Lovely stuff. Well, thank you very much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to talk today, Giles, I have to say. I also want to thank everyone who's been listening and putting up with me as the host. Very poorly <laughs> filling. Now it's got a very poorly filling Giles's shoes. Uh, if you've enjoyed this episode, please, please, please do share and review the podcast and keep the questions and requests coming in. To get in touch with Gasp, it's very easy to find them online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or you can email hello at calltoaction.co. Yeah, hey, hey.